Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to episode nine of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, tell us who we have on today. Yeah, today we get to hear from Craig Greenfield, who is the uh, director of Alongsiders International. It's just an amazing organization that's doing work um, with children um, in mentoring and some other just great things that Craig is going to be able to tell us about. He's also the author of two books, Urban Halo and Subversive Jesus, which just came out. The great thing about Craig, as you'll learn, uh, one of the great things about him is he is a man who lives out what he's talking about. I've been able to actually sit down at a table and eat lunch with him and his, and his team with the Longsiders, and um, he's a man who is the real deal. And so I just look forward to everyone being able to hear from him and just uh, kind of get a little uh, glimpse into the heart of Craig. I definitely encourage you to take notes as you're listening because there's just such good stuff in his content and what you guys were able to talk about. And as always, please feel free to connect with us on Twitter or our Facebook page and also at the thinkorphan.com website. We would love to hear your thoughts and answer any questions you may have. So let's get to our interview. Well, Craig, it's great to have you here with us today. Great to be with you, Phil. Craig, right now you're uh, you're up in Vancouver, Canada. Normally, uh, you're you're living out in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Um, I know a lot of the people listening in today uh, really don't know a lot about you, um, other than maybe they've read one of your books or are excited to read Subversive Jesus, which is coming out or actually just came out uh, this week. Uh, can you share your mm-hmm. story a little bit with uh, with everybody? Sure. Well, uh, it's uh, it's good to be here. I was actually born in uh, Canada, but uh, grew up in New Zealand, so that that accounts for the accent. Um, but I've lived most of my uh, adult life, at least uh, the last 16, uh, 18 years or so, um, in Cambodian slums uh, and here in inner city Vancouver. And um, God's calling on my life uh, has very much been as an outsider in most of the places where I go and where I live uh, to help insiders become alongsiders. So I'm very much passionate about seeing uh, local people raised up, um, God using them uh, to reach out to their own neighbors. And so I've spent a lot of time, many, many years and still live in in a Cambodian slum and have also lived uh, a number of years here in downtown Eastside Vancouver. So these are the places that I call home. Yeah, and that idea that uh, you're an outsider helping out insiders to become alongsiders, and that, that idea we'll get into a little bit later in detail, but I know that that's really at the heart and soul of the book that uh, that has just, just been released, Subversive Jesus. and. Your title is intentionally provocative. Can you can you just share a little bit about what you mean by subversive Jesus? Yeah, uh, I mean it. Kind of <clears throat> people uh, people either love it or hate it. Um, but my contention is that Jesus was subversive, and uh, if we look at the root word of the root meaning of subversive, it means sub means from below, and vert means from to turn. And um, so it's the sense that Jesus comes to turn everything upside down. Not from a top-down kind of position, but from from below, from 
from the grassroots. So uh, we're all about, um, you know, often seeing change from the top. We want to elect the right president. We want to see change from the top down. But I believe Jesus kind of shows us an upside down kingdom kind of approach to seeing change. And that's very much from the bottom up. So uh, where, where Jesus comes, he comes to subvert the, the status quo. He comes to subvert the establishment. And um, so where the, the kingdom of this world is, is on about uh, power and might and violence and uh, wealth as means of change, uh, Jesus comes to, to bring the opposite, where he works through vulnerability. He works for, through the people at the bottom of the heap, the people on the margins. And um, that's the way that the upside down kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Hmm. So what made you want to write this book? Um, it's it's really the it's kind of a combination of uh, of lived theology and um, a description of our failures at trying to live that theology. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm a great believer in 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 wanting to read things that um, where the author themselves has tried to experiment in putting that into practice. So for me, as I as I see and read and and love this Jesus who comes to bring good news to the poor. Um, not only to talk about what that means, but to uh, kind of share some of our own journey as a family in living in the slums and in the inner city um, of what, what that looks like, trying to figure out how to follow Jesus amongst the poor. Well, you definitely have lived out what you're writing about. Um, in fact, you you take developing relationships with those you're working with uh, to a level that most people just don't even dare to go. Uh, you've, as you've said, you live in the slums. You voluntarily live on the streets with the homeless. Um, can you share your experience? You know that you share in the book with Jason in Vancouver, and really why you've chosen to place yourself in these situations. Yeah, when we, um, you know, we moved to the downtown east side of Vancouver, and, and this is a place uh, maybe folks might not have heard about it, but it's the most concentrated area of drug activity in North America. Um, you know, thousands of homeless people, uh, people struggling with drug addiction, prostitution, right, right in the shadow of the of the empire, in the shadow of this one of the most beautiful and affluent cities of the world. And um, so, when we moved to the downtown east side initially, um, one of the things that I I believe is that to really know what what the good news is, we need to understand the bad news first. And so um, we decided to spend a little bit of time um, sleeping on the street, living on the street, just to understand what kind of challenges people face um, in, a, in an area like this. And uh, as we did that, as we lined up with other folks at the soup kitchens and uh, at the homeless shelters, um, we didn't actually stay in the shelters. We wanted to stay outside, but we would, we would line up with other folks and kind of shuffle in and shuffle out. And um, one thing became very, very clear. Um, many, many people, especially on the streets in the downtown east side, were um, and are facing a lot of isolation, a lot of sense of disconnection and rejection um, from their families, from their communities, from society at large. And so if that's the bad news, then what is the good news? And the good news is that Jesus offers a radical welcome. He welcomes everyone, especially those who are least likely to be welcomed. And so out of that experience, we just began to open up our home, uh, living together with other Christians, um, to folks who were on the streets or struggling with this or that, 
to come in and be a part of the family, be part of uh, sitting around the dinner table, enjoying a meal together. Um, not as some kind of institution where we are the benefactors and they are the beneficiaries, but uh, more of a mutual kind of relationship where we sit around the table on an equal level and, and share in, in all of what that means, including doing the dishes or helping to cook or all those kind of things as well. And I know that some people have criticized you or not necessarily criticized, but just said, you know, that's crazy and you're putting your kids at risk. And, you know, even at one point you share in the book about uh, Nay, your wife, um, just saying, you know, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? Because it puts our kids at risk. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we all have different personalities and we're all wired differently. And my wiring is, you know, I'm a I'm a. I, I like adventure, I uh, like risk, um, but my wife is coming from a very different perspective and she um, is concerned about safety and security and rightly so, and, w- and women do face different uh, physical risks from men very often. And so um, uh, over time I came to appreciate and understand her perspective and see that, that was, that's a really important perspective. And so when the, I tell the story in, in the books of Verse of Jesus the first time I brought a homeless guy home to sleep on our couch. And uh, my wife graciously welcomed him in. But, you know, that night uh, behind the closed door of our bedroom, she was like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> and um, so we had, to, we had to move from that point of me coming to the point of helping, uh, of really trying to understand where she was coming from and um, negotiating kind of ground rules or uh, boundaries for that. And over time, as she became more comfortable with welcoming folks into our home, she has really become, you know, one of the biggest advocates of welcoming in folks from the margins and does a well. Babe, uh, get out there and connect with people, but people just warm up to my wife in a way that uh, is is truly heartwarming. It's beautiful. Yeah, that was that was really encouraging to me. Just the the teachability that you showed in that moment, um, and the, there was a quote that that came around there that time of the book where it said, "To be inclusive, you must learn to be exclusive. In order to be yeah. truly inclusive and welcoming to those on the margins." There'll be times when you must be exclusive to shut the door and take care of yourself. So you yeah. have something to give next time. Yeah, um, that's, uh, that, that to me is a really important concept. Uh, it, it's it's kind of like in, in an airplane emergency, put your own mask on first. Um, because if you're not breathing, you're not going to be able to help anyone else to, else to breathe as well. And so we do need to, we need to find the ways to take care of ourselves. And there will be times when we have to say no, when we have to say, um, I can't welcome you in right now because um, if I welcome you and I won't be able to welcome in these other people because perhaps you're, you're abusive or whatever. And so there's, there's ways, there's times when we can't be 100% inclusive. We have to practice some exclusivity in order to be inclusive in other times in other areas. And I just want to encourage everyone to absolutely pick up this book, uh, read it. There's so many other stories about how Craig and his family and just the the love and the radical hospitality they've shown um, has made impacts, not just in their home, but on streets and that they've lived on. Um, basically, there's one story that talks about drug dealers that were that were taken over these streets and by showing acts of love and doing different really cool things, I'm not going to give it away, but uh, it basically had turned the 
one day of the week that it was the most busy, the busiest day of drug dealing into a day that the streets were empty of drug dealers. And I just encourage you folks to, uh, to pick it up and to, to read some more of those stories. Um, another theme and another thing that is throughout the book and, and the conversations that you and I have had, Craig, um, is really around the importance of nationals or insiders, as you talked about, leading the charge in our cross-cultural work. And I, yeah. I, I think there was a, a Cambodian proverb uh, that, that struck you and it struck me when I read it in your book. It takes a spider to repair its own web. Uh, can yeah. you just share how that theme and that idea has really uh, influenced uh, the work that you're doing in Cambodia and other parts of the world? Yeah, you, you know, I think uh, we often get the balance not quite right. Um, there, you know, throughout the throughout biblical history, throughout human history, God has used outsiders. He 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 brings in someone from outside, whether it's Moses or or Ruth or uh, Joseph, um, someone who is who is a cultural outsider, and he uses them uh, in ways to bring his transformation. But um, but much more so at the very heart of what God is doing in any community, in any nation, are those who are insiders. And I believe God places them central to his purposes. And um, as, as missionaries, we need, to, we need to really get that right because um, so often it's, it's more about us. Um, we, we, we will, believe me, everyone says it's about locals, it's about raising up locals. But in practice, uh, we we very often do things and uh, use strategies and approaches that disempower and uh, take away leadership from local people. Mm. And um, so I'm passionate about seeing local people, the poor in particular, at the at the forefront of what God is doing. And that's really what the Alongsiders movement is all about, as we see young, poor Christians from slums and rural villages all over Asia and now into Africa, each of them taking on one vulnerable child or orphan each as their little brother or sister. And I know that when you expand in a new country, uh, you don't just go in and start an organization there. What, what, can you just tell, the, tell everyone yeah. out there what, how you go into a new country and what approach you take? Yeah, we, uh, we only enter, uh, uh, the, the Alongsiders movement will only spread to a new country on the invitation and leadership of a local church network or denomination. And so we don't, uh, we don't go in and set up an office or anything like that. Uh, we ask them to lead the movement. It's a discipleship movement that is church-based. And um, they lead it, they appoint their leadership, they pay their leadership, um, or they figure out how to support them somehow. And uh, we're very careful about not bringing in resources that they can't replicate, um, not setting up systems or structures or putting in place things that can't be replicated by the local church. And, and you also are able to train them with some online training, other resources you have. Can you tell everyone out there, if they want to get involved with this, how they can learn more about Alongsiders and potentially do the training that you have available online? Yeah, um, so the, we one of the one of the challenges, of course, is how do we meet the the need and demand? Uh, you know, when we say to a church denomination or a church network um, that uh, we need to work together with them to see their young people learning how to disciple, 
Um, because if if you're, we say you know if your people are not discipling when they're young, they were they certainly won't be discipling when they're older. So let's let's start them young, and uh, obviously that discipleship is 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 by walking alongside an orphan or a vulnerable child. Um, and so you're reaching one, you're you're mobilizing one generation to reach the next. Now the just the scale of um, you know the need and the demand for this kind of thing. We work with denominations and church networks in countries of five thousand churches more uh, in a number of places. And so how do we how do we kind of provide that level of training? Um, so we live in uh, by by. By uh, you know, by our good fortune, we live in a time of the internet, and uh, we're able to do online training in um, at the moment eight languages. That will spread to fourteen languages in the next six months. And um, one of the great things about doing kind of online video training in your own language is you can just watch that training over and over again. And so, whereas if I if I come and do a training in English and it's translated. You get to hear it once, and maybe you catch it, maybe you don't. Um, but with video training in your own language, uh, you can really, really make sure that that sinks in. Mm. So we're excited about the potential for that. We're already training people in a dozen uh, countries um, through that online Alongsiders Academy, and you can uh, kind of check that out at alongsiders.org. Um, and we have a lot of different resources that we're using to equip and mobilize young people to really reach the next generation. Yeah, I know I've learned a lot with those resources. Uh, you know, just the little I've been able to dive into them. And I encourage everyone out there to check out alongsiders.org and, and um, really get involved in, in whatever way you feel God leading you to do so. Um, you know, and the Longsiders came out of um, indirectly and indirectly in different ways. Um, what you talk about in your book, uh, Urban Halo, and you also touch on it in Subversive Jesus, and it's really this idea that uh, you and your wife uh, had been had been moved, and a lot of what has uh, you know incited your passions and your work in, in Longsiders is the desperate needs of orphaned and vulnerable children. But when you really started researching that, you saw that and you concluded that the children didn't need orphanages or institutions to warehouse them, but rather needed families who would welcome them. And can you expand on that for a bit and just really what, you know, just summarize in a few minutes here what you wrote in an entire book, Urban Halo, about Uh this topic and really just this really difficult issue that a lot of people are wrestling with right now. And I'd love to hear from you what you uh, were able to um, very, state very well in Urban Halo. Sure. Well, uh, I mean, as we as we uh, immersed ourselves in in Cambodian slum, and um, at that time, a lot of children were being orphaned by AIDS, and um, so there was there was a lot of uh, orphans, a lot of uh, a lot of brokenness, a lot of dysfunction in those communities. And uh, and we began to look into ways that we could we could come alongside them. And um, around that time, I was also doing my my master's degree, my postgraduate research. So I, I decided to look at and compare orphan care in orphanages to orphan care in the community. And um, as part of that, I had to review you know decades of research. Uh, and, and other studies had looked at that exact question as well. And I did my own research with hundreds of children. 
And um, as a result, it became very, very clear. The literature is very, very clear on this one. Um, children are better cared for in families and communities. And um, what some, many of the challenges that they face in growing up in an institution is uh, just the result of not having one kind of permanent person in their life that will be there for them and will never change and is not also there for 100 other kids. Um, and so this, this really comes out of John Bowlby's research into attachment theory, the, the idea that every single child needs a mother figure or a mother substitute. And, you know, I know that if I was, uh, if I was to pass away and my children were left orphans, that I would like to see them go and be a part of a family. Uh, I believe that's God's original intent for caring for children. And we need to do everything we possibly can as the church to strengthen and come alongside families. You know, these children who have lost their parents um, should not be taken away from everyone else that they know and love as well. Um, their neighbors, their extended family. And in places, in, in, in cultures in Asia and Africa, extended family is, is even more important than it is in, in North America. And so we really do these children a disservice when we fail to strengthen and come alongside their families and instead uh, put them into orphanages. In my research, what I found backed up what other people are finding is that the number one reason children are in orphanages is poverty. It's because their families can't afford to care for them, not because they're orphaned, but because they can't afford to care for them. So I'm, I'm a firm and passionate believer that we need to be spending our money to keep children in their communities rather than spending it to take them out. Yeah, and that that's something that again, it's it, there's it's so multifaceted, and I, I really wish we had time to dive into that deeper. Um, and the the good part about it is we can um, do that deeper by by reading. And I, I mentioned it before, Urban Halo. Um, it definitely um, informed uh, a lot of this conversation for me. I know I've been thinking about it a lot, and it, it definitely helped me to uh, sure. kind of struggle through it together um, with, with what you've been learning. So yeah. um, you can actually um, pick up a, a free copy of Urban Halo ebook um, on my website, craiggreenfield.com. I just want to, I bought the rights back from the publisher so that I could give it out free because uh, we want to get the word out. Fantastic. And definitely I encourage you to do that right now. Just don't even wait till this podcast is over. Um, the one thing you mentioned is the mother substitute and you know, there's a, there's a, a big, um, conversation as well right now about the fatherless issue and just yeah. fatherlessness and the effects of that on, on both girls and boys. Can you just speak to that as well, as far as the, the real need for a father, um, in a child's life as well? Yeah. I mean, we desperately need fathers and, and I see that in, in the slum where I live now, um, it's a, it's a slum of multi-generational prostitution. You know, the grandmothers, the, their daughters, and uh, their daughters coming on through. And the fathers are just not around. And uh, I'm one of the few males in the community. Uh, but when I come home from, from my work at the Alongsiders office, uh, all the children just flock to me just for some, for some kind of father time, some positive male attention. Mm. And um, that to me is, is heartbreaking. Um, and it's, it's part of what I think we're trying to address with the Alongsiders movement in a, to a small extent is, um, you know, 
alongside is is kind of like a Christian version of big brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. It's this, um, it's these older figures, male and female who will come alongside you and just, just let you know that you're special and, and teach you the things that you, you may not be being taught at home. And, uh, so we, we all need to play our part. Alongside us isn't the magic bullet that, that solves right. every problem under the sun, but it's one of the tools in the toolbox that the church has. And um, and fathers are desperately needed. There's many, many ways for us as as Christians to play that role in the li- in the lives of vulnerable children. And how much do you talk with them and and uh, stress on them the importance of commitment and long term commitment? Because the last thing you'd want to do, obviously, is bring someone else into their life that would then abandon them after they bond. Yeah. Um, so how can you, you know, especially in these communities where that necessarily hasn't been taught and modeled out for them? How are you able yeah. to train that in that and instill that in these people? Yeah, so um, when, we, when, they, when they join up and become an alongsider, the commitment, the understood commitment it is that they will continue the formal commitment until that child um, has grown up and has become and maybe even become an alongsider themselves. Mm. So we have alongsiders who have now been serving for 12, 13 years. And uh, we build into the into the movement all kinds of ways of, of celebrating what we want to see more of. So at a, at our camp, we'll get all the all the alongsiders who used to be little brothers and sisters up the front, and um, you know give them a certificate or give them a T-shirt or something, and just acknowledge what they've done. And as all the little kids, all the little brothers and sisters are there clapping for these alongsiders who used to be little brothers and sisters, they're all sitting there thinking, "Gee, I would love to do that myself." And so we um, we've kind of built into the movement ways of showing and modeling and celebrating longevity. Because it's such an important part of that of that stability and faithfulness um, to a vulnerable child. Hmm. Yeah, and I want to. I just want to ask one last question about the book. I want to pose a question to you that you pose to the reader, and see how you'd answer it based on your experience. You told a story, a brief story about. Uh, people handing out socks and scarves to people living on the streets in Vancouver. And you then pose the question, is it possible that this kind of charity actually impedes the realization of justice in our broken neighborhoods? What do you think of that? Yeah, um, that's, uh, I mean, that's a real, that's opening up a can of worms right there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I don't want to discourage people from getting started. We all need to start somewhere. And for many of us, that's handing out hot chocolate or a pair of socks to someone who's homeless. Um, But I I don't want us to be satisfied with that. Um, God is calling us to go much deeper. He's calling us not only to address the, the, uh, the, the people who are victims of the system, but to address the system itself that's Mm -hmm. broken. And um, Martin Luther King Jr. said said this quite well in a quote, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something like, <laughs> um, you know, we're not we're not only called to to fling a coin to a beggar, but to uh, address the edifice that produces beggars. Hmm. And um, I think very often, sometimes, as, especially evangelical Christians, we've been real good on charity. We've been real good on mercy. And not and and kind of seen uh, seeking justice or seeking systemic change as something that maybe isn't right at the heart of the gospel. 
Um, but in, I think if you if you read Subversive Jesus, you'll see that this is actually something that is very much a part of the upside down kingdom that Jesus was seeking to bring on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, and you go deeper into that uh, issue as well as this uh, inherent conflict we have in our world that those who hold the most power and authority in society are the least likely to want to change the system that produces poverty. And you kind of alluded to that in your answer. And I um, Mm -hmm. really like the way you address that and talked about that. So again, um, you can can read more about that in the book uh, if you're able to pick that up. Um, yeah, yeah. But, just one one comment about that, you know. And as we form our nonprofits and our nonprofit boards, who do we put on the board? It's always mm. those who benefit from the status quo, those who have made a lot of money because mm-hmm. we want big donors on our boards, and those are the people who lead and govern our nonprofit organizations that are supposed to benefit the poor. Now, those people have good hearts. I I myself am from an affluent background. I'm not knocking these people personally, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying they're not going to be the most invested in systemic change because they benefit from the system. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's so much more, as you might imagine. There's uh, two more questions for you um, that we'll finish up with. And and the first one is, what one thing have you read or listened to in the past few months that has most shaped your thinking about these issues? Yeah, um, I've been reading this book. Uh, I'm going to plug someone else's book here because it's just fantastic. Um, called We Are Not the Hero by Jean Johnson. Mm. And um, she uh, addresses many of the kind of shortcomings of the way that we engage in mission, whether it's short term or long term, the way that we use money in missions, the way that we communicate the gospel cross-culturally, the way that we plant churches, um, just with a fantastic uh, kind of critique, but offering a, a different alternative way as well. And so I highly recommend that book. Uh, Gene Johnson, We Are Not the Hero. All right. Well, I look forward to reading that. And uh, the last question for you, what uh, one person has most shaped your thinking in the area of orphan care? Um, I think I'm going to go back to John Bowlby. John Bowlby was a um, a social scientist and uh, he wrote about the term attachment theory. And uh, this really came out of his life. When he was five years old, he was sent away to a boarding school. And that deeply traumatized him. And he he said, I wouldn't send a dog away from home at that age. Mm. And uh, as a result of his personal experience and the experience of many others, including um, some of my own family members who were sent away to boarding schools at a, at a too young age, uh, he really began to research and look into and eventually uh, came up with the idea of attachment theory, which is, is widely accepted now. And uh, attachment theory deeply, deeply influences, um, you know, how we understand orphan care, this idea that we need attachment, we need a mother, a mother substitute, and institutional care simply cannot provide that. Um, And so John Bowlby has really deeply influenced me uh, in in orphan care, and, and I think the world at large is the general public is finally beginning to understand that. Uh, the way that we care for children is going to make a huge difference for them for the rest of their lives. That is so true. And thanks again, Craig, for your uh, for your time today. Again, everyone out there, you can pick up uh, a copy of Subversive Jesus wherever books are sold. 
Um, and I know that all the proceeds go to uh, Alongsiders. And so that's another that's right. another reason to be able to pick that up. So thanks again, uh, Craig. And I look forward to continuing the conversation real soon. Thanks, Phil. Great talking to you. There was just so much great stuff in that conversation. I just uh, really respect Craig for what he's doing and who he is. And just the story is so rich. Um, Kelly, what, what stuck out to you in that conversation? Well, I know I will definitely be reading his book because the story of his life is so compelling and so radically different than most people. And so I know that I'm going to enjoy uh, reading that for what really stood out, though, is probably just this concept of modeling the life of Jesus that he did as far or that he is as far as going into the parts of the cities uh, that we, that he is serving in that most people don't want to go into, but not only just going into them, actually living amongst the, amongst people and then taking it a step further and inviting them into their home and, and just the stereotypes I think that we have of people of poverty or uh, criminal activity and things like that, that he is breaking down, I believe, and, and not um, just taking it on the surface level, but just sharing a meal and just the power of sharing a meal with someone that I believe breaks down a lot of barriers and breaks down a lot of just uh, the conversation into more of what we have in common. And I believe that when, when as, as he is doing that with his family, that that is speaking volumes into the people that he is living amongst. Yeah, and that's something that I saw with him firsthand when I was able to sit down and share a meal with him. And it wasn't just me there. It was a full table of people from all over. And that's something that um, is just so powerful to be able to dive into people's lives. And the thing that um, I also really appreciate about Craig is he, it's not, he's not one of those guys that crams everything down your throat. You know, and the book is, is really clear about that, that like, look, this is something that God has put on his heart and you will have a transformed heart if you are following God, but it will look different for everybody and everyone has different boundaries and everyone has different convictions. But what I love about his challenge is, is it's one that says, but you need to dive into it. You know, you need to really go into what is uncomfortable or else you're not going to really be where God wants you and God has you. Not all the time necessarily, but there's definitely times where, you know, they say that God's will is often just on the other side of comfortable. You know, that line of what comfortable and uncomfortable is. Absolutely. And I think especially when we are looking at the kingdom of God and how varied it is and how different we all are, just being willing to do you know people that look different than you? Do you know people that are from a different part of the world than you? And are you building those relationships? And so I think just that aspect of what he is doing is so powerful and has the ability to change a, um, a, a section of society. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the quotes that really stuck out to me and, and is something that I think is just so beautiful, especially in all the cross-cultural stuff that we're working on around the world is, you know, he said, God has called many of us outsiders to mobilize and equip insiders to become alongsiders. And the thing I love about that is it really focuses on the role of everybody in this work. You know, all of us have a role. I know you were sharing with me a 
sermon that you had listened to recently. And I think that would be, as we're sharing resources that our guests are reading and listening to, I would love for us to be able to do that with each other that of what we are listening to and reading as well. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, it was just great. I mean, yesterday, in fact, I was just listening to this incredible uh, sermon that Tim Keller gave, and it's part of the Gospel in Life uh, resources that uh, his church, Redeemer Presbyterian, offers for free. Um, just some of his sermons and the things that he's uh, doing. And it's called, it was a sermon call in, called Doing Justice in Mercy. And one thing in particular that he said, I mean, the whole sermon is fantastic and it's about 40 minutes. Uh, I encourage you to all go out there and download it. But it, he said something that says, anyone who gets you to do justice out of duty or self-interest, in the end, that leads to entitlement and not humility. They will always do the minimum and will only do it for a while. And he basically goes in and talks about, you know, we need to really develop a get to attitude when we're doing this work and not a have to mentality. It's something that is so critical and I've seen it firsthand. You know, when I'm doing something out of duty, I mean, sometimes, yeah, we need to do it out of duty. C.S. Lewis has a great quote saying, duty is a crutch for, you know, for love, basically. But no one uses a crutch if you don't need to. Right, so the idea is, that's a paraphrase of Lewis, he said a lot more, uh, a lot better than I did, but um, the idea is we will, if we do this work out of love, and it truly comes from an understanding that we are image bearers, we are children of God, and that's his heart, so we can be a part of what he's doing. That's when we can, we can really start seeing this being a long-term thing that will last. And I think it goes to what Craig is doing, because he truly sees this as a, it's something that he loves doing because he is a child of God and he gets to be a part of what God's doing. He has seen what God's doing in these places that most of us never even venture to go. Mm-hmm. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts. We know we have uh, covered a lot of topics today and that may have stirred something in your own mind or that you have a question about. So please feel free to connect with us. And next week we are sitting down with Mick Peace. So join us next week. Hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.